Hello and welcome to Timeless Files, a fan podcast for the TV show Timeless. I am your host, Chris Butler. By the time this podcast is posted, the first episode of Season 2 will have aired in the States. In the UK, it is confirmed that E4 will be broadcasting the series. Not sure when yet, but it's said to be coming soon. I will continue to put out these Season 1 podcasts as quickly as I can make them, and hopefully someone out there will have time to listen to them when they're not watching Season 2. It's fair to say that fan excitement over Season 2 is at fever pitch right now. Also fan anxiety, because everyone knows that the future of the show depends on its ratings. So if you possibly can, watch it live, or stream it in the first few days after broadcast, or both. It could make all the difference. And keep telling people how great Timeless is. They'll thank you someday. There's been a lot of press coverage about Timeless, which is fantastic to see. There was also a Q&A with the writers of the show, live on Facebook, which was really great, but it was too short. More like that, please. With Timeless Files, my policy so far has been to avoid spoilers for future episodes. But as I start to discuss these last four episodes of Season 1, I think there might be reasons to talk about where the story is going through to the end of Season 1. So from this point onwards, assume that I might talk about anything from Season 1. But I won't spoil Season 2. On with the podcast then, this time I'm talking about Season 1, Episode 13, Karma Chameleon. Previously on Timeless, Wyatt has confided to Rufus that he wants to steal the time machine to save his wife, Jessica, who died five years previously. But they know they can't travel within their own lifetimes, so they're going to have to do something further back in time. Wyatt believes he knows who the killer is, a man named Wes Gilliam, who has been convicted for two other murders. The episode starts with a knock on the door at Carol Preston's house. Lucy runs down the stairs to answer it. Wyatt tells her he intends to take the lifeboat and save his wife. Lucy says he's insane. He will be in so much trouble. He says that's an understatement. After a brief moment of indecision, she says she'll go with them. But that's not what he wants. He reminds her she has a deal with Agent Christopher to save her sister Amy. That deal will be gone if she gets involved with this. But he doesn't have a deal for himself, and the moment they've stopped Flynn, he thinks he won't get anywhere near the lifeboat ever again. So for him, this is his only chance. She asks, what if Flynn goes out in the mothership while he's gone? What if he needs her history expertise? But these aren't serious objections. She's just clutching at reasons why he shouldn't do this, because she knows what the consequences will be. At the very least, Wyatt will be off the team. She says, what if someone gets hurt? His plan is to stop Wes Gillian's parents from meeting. No one will be hurt, and if Wes is never born, then all three women will be saved. Lucy looks crestfallen because she knows she can't stop him, and he says whatever happens to him, it will be worth it to have Jessica back. Lucy is in tears now. There's no dialogue here to explain why, but the implication is that he is choosing Jessica over Lucy. 
and I think she's disappointed about that. Also, he's putting what he wants ahead of helping her stop Flynn. Because he's not going to play any further part in that now if he goes ahead with what he's saying he's going to do. She looks and sounds very sad when she asks him what he needs her to do. He says she should contact Agent Christopher and tell her what's happening so that no blame will fall on Lucy, but to wait 20 minutes before she makes that call. She says, why does this feel like we're saying goodbye? And I guess that is the crux of why she's upset. She wishes him good luck, and he says, thank you, ma'am. And if you're not feeling a little bit teary-eyed by this point, then you're as hard as stone. So Wyatt and Rufus fire up the lifeboat. Wyatt is pointing a gun at Rufus to make it look like Wyatt is forcing him to do this. Rufus makes Wyatt promise he's not going to hurt anyone. But is Wyatt going to be able to keep that promise? Next we get a scene with Flynn, Brule and Emma Whitmore. This is the first we've seen of her since Flynn brought her back from 1882. She's enjoying a beer. First one in ten years, I guess. She has explained to them what Rittenhouse aims to do with the mothership. Unfortunately, we didn't hear any of that. We're not told what the plans are, but Brühl describes it as an existential threat to reality. Brühl says they should destroy the time machine to prevent Rittenhouse ever getting their hands on it. Flynn says no, they'd have to destroy the lifeboat too, and what's to stop Rittenhouse from building another one? Emma says it would take three or four years to build another. Flynn is determined to stick to his plan that he's had all along, which is to wipe Rittenhouse from history. Brawl thinks it's too dangerous to allow the possibility that Rittenhouse will get the time machine. Flynn has talked previously about giving up the time machine if he succeeds in destroying Rittenhouse, but for now he insists they stick to the plan and Brule eventually agrees, or appears to. I think there is a strong argument that Flynn makes a tragic error here, but of course he was never going to agree to destroy the time machine with Rittenhouse still in play and his family still dead. A caption comes up on screen, March 19, 1983. So Wyatt and Rufus have arrived in that year. Rufus was born in December 1983, we're told. So this is only just okay as a destination in time for them. And presumably this is the most recent time period we will ever see in Timeless. I believe Lucy was also born in 1983. Whether before or after March 19th, I don't know. But since she's not on this trip, that doesn't matter. Although I suppose if she had been alive on March 19th, 1983, then that would have been another reason why she couldn't have come along on this trip. Why it didn't put that forward as a reason why she had to stay behind. But I don't think we can deduce anything much from that. Anyway, Wyatt and Rufus are at the Toledo Express airport. Rufus is looking at an episode of the A-Team on the TV at the airport. He knows the title of the episode. He's that much of a geek. Or that much of a fan of the A-Team. He thinks he's like the A-Team through time. The time team. Wyatt is completely uninterested in the TV. He shows Rufus photos of Claire Gilliam and Joel Bender, 
who were Wes Gilliam's parents. She's a flight attendant, he's a bartender. They're going to have a one-night stand tonight and then never see each other again, which is why Wes has his mother's surname rather than his father's. Rufus asks Wyatt how he knows all this. Wyatt says that it wasn't difficult to find out information about a convicted serial killer, and he's done his homework. But not well enough, it seems. As we see throughout this episode, his knowledge of the events here is sketchy at best. To start with, the flight he was expecting Claire to be arriving on at this airport has come in 20 minutes early, and he's missed her. He speaks to some other flight attendants. Um, Rufus has to inform Wyatt that they're actually called stewardesses here. Wyatt claims that Claire was an old friend from high school and manages to charm them into revealing the hotel she's staying at, which is the Toledo Express Inn. Although this lie gets him the information he needs to track her down, it's going to come back to bite him later. So, not a great start, but not a disaster yet. We cut back to Mason Industries, where Agent Christopher is grilling Lucy. She's fielding calls from the President, she says. She knows Lucy covered for Wyatt for 24 minutes. She says Wyatt should have come to her rather than do something this reckless. Lucy gives as good as she gets in this argument. She says she and Agent Christopher had a deal to get Amy back, and Christopher has done nothing to make good on that promise. Lucy says she's shocked Wyatt didn't steal the time machine sooner. She would do the same to get her sister Amy back, and Agent Christopher would do the same for her family. And I think that is absolutely true. We know how important Agent Christopher's family is to her. Whether this conversation alone is sufficient to persuade Christopher to any kind of lenience towards Wyatt, probably it's not in her power to be lenient, even if she wanted to be. Wyatt and Rufus arrive at the Toledo Express Inn. It's raining. They rush inside. Rufus is loving the 80s vibe. Given that this is the year he was born, you might think he would enjoy the 90s more. But I guess the 80s do have a certain unbeatable appeal, whatever age you are. Wyatt sees Claire Gilliam and thinks that he can relax now. He's back on track. But then he sees that the bartender is Joel. It's another lapse in his homework if he wasn't expecting this. The people he hoped to prevent from ever meeting have just met. At Mason Industries, Gia's phone is ringing. She answers and realises it's Anthony Brule on the line. He says he needs to speak to Rufus. Connor Mason happens to be passing and can tell from her expression that something major is happening. But Gia can't put Rufus on the line because he's in 1983. So next we cut to a meeting room. Brule is now saying he will only talk to Lucy. Mason says he wants to talk to Anthony. But Agent Christopher says no, Lucy needs to take the call. She's reluctant, but they pass the phone to her anyway. Brule asks why Rufus isn't answering any of his six devices. He guesses that Rufus must have gone out in the lifeboat. Of course he doesn't know why. He says Lucy is the only other person who will understand what he has to say. He tells her where to meet him and tells her not to wear a wire because he will know. 
He says he has a plan to end all of this for good. Back in 1983, Rufus bumps into Claire, knocking her room key to the ground. The room number is clearly seen here, which turns out to be important later. But this is a setup so that Wyatt can move in and be super charming. Rufus watches in admiration from a distance as Wyatt manages to drop into the conversation that he is a special forces soldier. So he quickly manages to engage her in conversation. They're talking about baseball. Meanwhile, Rufus seems to have paired up with Claire's friend, Becky, and their conversation is more about the A-team and another TV show, Manimal. I hate to say it, but I think this is a gaffe because Manimal didn't air until later in 1983. Please don't hate me for noticing this. I really didn't mean to. Moving along, Wyatt asks if they all want to get out of there and go someplace else. He's obviously just trying to get Claire away from Joel. But Claire says she's waiting for another friend, so she can't. On the TV, there is a report that the storm is getting worse, and there are now tornado warnings. And to prove the point, a state trooper staggers through the door with an injured arm. He says his car hit a fallen tree. He announces the roads are now being closed and everyone needs to stay at the hotel. Joel brings out a first aid kit and Claire helps too. But Joel and Claire working together is the last thing Wyatt wanted to see. The credits are on screen at this point. Once again, Timeless has packed an incredible amount of story into the first ten minutes or so of this episode. It's really clever writing, I think, how they managed to do this. This episode is written by Ankathel Saunders, who previously wrote episode 5, the Alamo episode. I think these two episodes are quite different from each other. Anne has just received the Mark Medoff Outstanding Entertainment Writing Award at the Las Cruces International Film Festival. So congratulations to her. Sadly, she isn't returning for season 2 of Timeless, because she's working on another forthcoming show with Eric Kripke, called The Boys. And this episode is directed by Greg Beeman, who previously directed episode 6, which was the Watergate tape story. So having successfully recreated the 70s there, he gets to have a go at the 80s with this one. Joel and Claire seem to be getting along well. Wyatt is losing it, but Rufus calms him down, saying if they could survive the Alamo, then surely they can easily prevent Joel and Claire from getting together. Rufus says he will occupy Joel, and Wyatt can do the same with Claire. Lucy has agreed to meet with Anthony Brule. There is concern that this could be another attempt to abduct her, but she thinks if there's any chance that Brule can bring all this to an end somehow, then she's willing to take the risk. Mason tries to insist that he should go with her, but Agent Christopher vetoes that idea. Gia puts a tracker on Lucy, despite the fact that Brule said not to do that. She and Lucy are alone. As usual, Lucy is very good at picking up on someone else's mood. She asks Gia if she's okay. Gia is annoyed that Rufus went off on this unauthorised trip without telling her. Lucy says he was just protecting her. But Gia says if you care about someone, if you trust them, if you might even love them, 
then you tell them about something like this. <laughs> then when she asks Lucy how she found out, Lucy has to admit that Wyatt told her. Lucy says he had to tell her so that she could buy him some time. But Gia and Lucy both know what this looks like. That Wyatt told Lucy what he was going to do because he cares about her, trusts her and might even love her. They don't discuss this but the smile on Gia's face, which is almost a smirk, is priceless. So Lucy goes to the location Brule has given her. Agent Christopher has people following her, despite the fact that she's supposed to be going alone. Brule grabs her as she passes a doorway and pulls her into a building. Christopher sees that Lucy isn't where she's meant to be and tells her people to move in. Brule quickly finds the tracker that Gia planted on Lucy and wraps it in foil to cut the signal. He says he just wants to talk to her. They leave the building and Brule takes the tracker out of the foil and plants it on a random person passing by. So while Christopher's agents are chasing the wrong person, Brule gets away taking Lucy with him. They go into another building. Lucy says she understands that Flynn and Brule are trying to wipe out Rittenhouse. But Brule doesn't seem to feel that way anymore. He says he's no better than Rittenhouse. But he makes a decision to trust her and puts the gun away. He tells her that Rittenhouse tries to control everything, but it's a struggle. There are always outliers, people they can't easily control, like JFK and MLK. And they're losing more control every year. What if they could go back in the mothership, attack key moments in time, remake reality in their image? He says Flynn is the only thing standing in their way. And it's not enough. He can't risk them getting the mothership. He says he's going to destroy it. And he's hoping that Lucy and Rufus will blow up the lifeboat too. He tells her not to trust anyone who doesn't want her to do this, and not to trust Connor Mason. She's not sure she can just believe everything he's saying. He says to tell Agent Christopher to use satellites to look for an explosion in Oakland. When she sees that explosion, she'll know the mothership has been destroyed. He says he has to believe she'll do the right thing too, and he leaves. In 1983, Wyatt and Claire are getting along now. Another guy tries to hit on her, so Wyatt has to deal with him. He's a trained soldier, so it doesn't take much to persuade the other guy to leave Claire alone. For now, at least. One could take the view that anyone who isn't Joel could be a good idea. But he was a jerk. A predatory schmuck. So probably not. Claire tells him the air stewardess job isn't as rewarding as she thought or hoped it would be. She talks about going home but says things are difficult with her mother. Wyatt says tomorrow he is going to see his family again for the first time in a long time. They're interrupted when the door of the bar opens and a group of air stewardesses come in, looking very windblown. Unfortunately, these are the same stewardesses that Wyatt and Rufus spoke to at the airport. The story Wyatt told there, that Claire was an old school friend, is quickly revealed as a lie. Joel overhears this and tells Wyatt he can stay in the lobby because of the storm but he can't stay in the bar now. All Wyatt can do now is do what he's been asked to do and leave the bar. 
But Wyatt is becoming more desperate now to intervene and prevent what's happening between Claire and Joel. He can see that they're chatting together at the bar again. He tells Rufus to lure Joel into the back hallway. Wyatt intends to just take him away from the hotel, take him for a ride. But Rufus is not happy. They're talking about kidnapping, when there was an armed state trooper in the building and a storm raging outside. Wyatt insists he's not going to hurt anyone. Lucy and Agent Christopher are talking, alone in a parked car. Lucy says that if Brule does blow up the mothership, then they should blow up the lifeboat too. Christopher says, what about your sister, Amy? Lucy says they get her back first, then blow up the lifeboat. She says this very casually, like it's not even up for debate. It's interesting that Lucy doesn't even consider for a second that they wouldn't get Amy back first. Christopher says there's no way that anyone at Mason Industries, or her own bosses, are going to agree to torching the lifeboat. Lucy says, how often do you get to save the world? Christopher seems to agree then, but she says only the two of them can know about it. Lucy mustn't say anything to anyone, especially Mason, because she has proof Mason is in league with Rittenhouse. Lucy asks, what proof? And Christopher hands her a set of photos. It's sinking feeling time because we know what the photos are going to show, but Lucy doesn't. The photos show Mason with Benjamin Cahill. Lucy's reaction is quite understated. It's like she can't even process what this means. She tells Agent Christopher that she knows Cahill. She went to his house and knocked on his door. Cahill is her father. <laughs> Rufus needs to get Joel away from the bar, so he tells him that there is flooding in the kitchen, and Joel follows him back there. But things go south very quickly. The other guy, who tried to hit on Claire earlier, reappears to pick a fight with Wyatt. Maybe he's been drinking a lot in the intervening time. Wyatt floors him with a couple of punches, but then the state trooper sees them and intervenes. Wyatt is trying to back down quietly, but then the trooper sees Wyatt's gun and reacts by drawing his own firearm. This is very like something that happened in the Watergate tape episode. Wyatt really needs to get better at concealing his gun. Anyway, this time Wyatt doesn't have any fake FBI ID on him to defuse the situation. The trooper takes his gun from him and arrests him. Not that he can take him anywhere, really, because of the storm. Anthony Brould is carrying out some kind of repair or diagnostic on the mothership. Or at least he claims that's what he's doing. Emma says she's amazed he can do this kind of work without the facilities at Mason Industries. Which is an interesting point, actually. Emma can fly the time machine, but she doesn't know how to build it. At least not to the extent that Brawl does. In Brawl's bag, we see that he has C4 explosives. The trooper is holding Wyatt in an office somewhere. Rufus rushes in and says a kid has run out into the storm. His name is Haley Joel. <laughs> when the trooper goes to help... Wyatt takes his opportunity to knock the trooper out. River says Wyatt didn't need to do that. He was already being lured away. Some time has passed because the bar is closed now. 
Rufus says Joel and Claire went to her room together. Rufus reminds Wyatt that he promised not to hurt anyone. He asks Wyatt what Jessica would think if she knew what he was doing. But Wyatt knows Claire's room number and rushes up there. Rufus is delayed while he handcuffs the trooper to prevent him interfering. Wyatt bursts into their room and separates them. They're very frightened because Wyatt has a gun. He insists he's not going to hurt them and takes Joel away from the room, leaving Claire behind. He takes Joel out into the storm outside. He's trying to get the car door open when Joel pushes away from him and makes a run for it. It's hard to see exactly what happens here, but a piece of wood is caught by the wind and blown into Joel's path, tripping him up. He goes tumbling over a parked car and smashes his head on a broken concrete bollard of some kind. There's a sickening thud as his head strikes it. Wyatt tries to help him up, but there is blood literally pouring out of the wound and flying away in the wind. Joel loses consciousness and Wyatt looks down at him, horrified by what's happened. Rufus arrives and pulls Wyatt away, saying they have to go. My reaction to this was surprised that, from a writing perspective, they took this as far as they did. Wyatt certainly didn't mean to kill Joel, but he is responsible for it to a very large degree. And the awful nature of Joel's death is shown on screen. They don't shy away from it or soften it in any way. We cut to the two of them back in the lifeboat. Wyatt says he didn't mean for it to happen. Rufus says at least three women will be alive because of this. Wyatt has to admit that Jessica would be horrified if she knew what's happened here. He doesn't know how he's going to look her in the eye, but at least she'll be alive. Back at Mason Industries, Connor Mason goes to see Agent Christopher and demands to know what Brule has had to say to Lucy, but she refuses to tell him anything. He says they're in his building and she has no right to withhold information from him. She says the US government gives her the right. This is when the lifeboat arrives back. The moment Wyatt steps out, he is immediately arrested. He asks Lucy to tell him about Jessica, but he learns that Jessica is still dead. She was still killed in the same circumstances as before. The other two women are alive now, so he did save them, but not Jessica. Wyatt can't believe it. He was convinced that Wes Gilliam admitted to the killing. He's shouting that Jessica is still alive as they take him away, but she isn't and this is the last that we see of Wyatt in this episode. Gia tells Agent Christopher that an explosion has happened in Oakland. Christopher and Rufus fly out there and find a building in ruins. But there is no debris from the mothership. And then Rufus is shown Brawl's dead body with two gunshot wounds in the chest. I really wish that we had seen this final confrontation between Flynn and Brawl and I wish that we'd seen whether Emma had any part in it. We do find out later, but not in this episode, that it was Flynn who pulled the trigger. In the whole of time of season one, this is the one thing that stays in my mind as a part of the story that should have been filmed and shown, but wasn't. I'm sure there were reasons why they didn't film this. Maybe they thought it would be good to maintain a little mystery around exactly what happened here. Or maybe they did film it, but the footage was not usable for some reason. 
Maybe it's a small thing, but it nags at me that we didn't get to see this. In the last scene in this episode, Lucy goes to see Benjamin Cahill. She tells him she knows who he is, and she wanted to tell him so, and she thought that even he wouldn't hurt his own daughter. He says she's got it all wrong. He's glad she knows about Rittenhouse. He's glad she's here. He says it's a relief. Having to watch her from a distance hasn't been easy. He says she's smart, she's beautiful. She says she couldn't care less what he thinks of her. What he's a part of is inhuman. He says she's a part of it too, Rittenhouse. It's in her blood. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's a gift. He says they have so much to talk about. And that's the end of the episode. I mentioned last time about Lucy killing Jesse James and how these things are not taken lightly by Timeless as a show. Now we have the death of Joel here, which was a tragic accident but only happens because of Wyatt's actions. And in fact, the breathless pace of these last episodes of season one means that there isn't a lot of screen time given to the repercussions of all this. On the Facebook Q&A with the writing team that I mentioned earlier, one of the things they said is that in season two they have cut back on the spectacle a bit in order to focus on character. I'm really intrigued to see what aspects of the characters they're going to focus on. I'm sure they're going to make life really difficult for these characters, one way or another. Although Agent Christopher had been in agreement with Lucy about blowing up the lifeboat if the mothership had been blown up, of course that didn't happen. So that idea is at best on hold. I think this episode is interesting in the way it separates Wyatt and Rufus from Lucy. We often see that episodes of Timeless have two strands, if you like. One in the past and one in the present. But here Lucy is involved in the events in the present and that story runs alongside the events in the past. So in terms of the way the episode is written and structured and the way it's edited, I think it's quite different from other episodes. Since Lucy didn't go on this mission and wasn't in the lifeboat, that means theoretically she wouldn't remember any original timeline here. But actually the change to the timeline is minimal, certainly for her. Joel's death has no direct relevance to her life. There's an interesting story idea in here somewhere. If one of Wyatt, Lucy and Rufus were to miss a mission, it could result in that person not understanding a change that happens. But I suppose this is the position that all the secondary characters are in every week. Agent Christopher, Mace and Gia, none of them have any direct awareness of previous timelines. It's interesting to think about why this episode is called Karma Chameleon. The song is supposed to be about if you're not true to yourself then a kind of karma justice comes into play and you'll be punished for it. But Wyatt is completely true to himself here, or at least true to the man he has been. 
But maybe the point is that he needs to be a different kind of man. And if he keeps pursuing this attempt to save Jessica, he will continue to be punished for it. He certainly comes to think so, after the events in this episode. But whether this will be continued into season two, we will have to wait and see. That's all for this episode. Next time I'll be discussing episode 14, The Lost Generation. All the podcasts so far are available on the site, timelessfiles.podbean.com, or in all the usual podcasting places, including iTunes, Stitcher and TuneIn. And you can find me on Twitter at, at @timelessfiles. As always, thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time.